0: Chapter Nineteen, Part Three, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry-Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, Never Again, Part Three. For three weeks, I worked among the Adelie penguins at Cape Royds and obtained a complete series of their embryos. It was always Wilson's idea that embryology was the next job of a vertebral zoologist down south. I have already explained that the penguin is an interesting link in the evolutionary chain, and the object of getting this embryo is to find out where the penguins come in. Whether or no they are more primitive than other non-flying birds, such as the apteryx, the ostrich, the rhea and the moa, which last is only just extinct, is an open question. But wingless birds are still hanging on to the promontories of the southern continents, where there is less rivalry than in the highly populated land areas of the north. It may be that penguins are descended from ancestors who lived in the northern hemisphere in a winged condition, even now you may sometimes see them try to fly, and that they have been driven towards the south. If penguins are primitive, it is rational to infer that the most primitive penguin is farthest south. These are the two Antarcticists, the Emperor and the Adelie. The latter appears to be the more numerous and successful of the two, and for this reason We are inclined to search among the emperors as being among the most primitive penguins, if not the most primitive, of birds now living, hence the winter journey. I was glad to get, in addition, this series of Adelie penguins' embryos, feeling somewhat like a giant who had wandered on to the wrong planet, and who was distinctly in the way of its true inhabitants. We returned too late to see the eggs laid, and therefore it was impossible to tell how old the embryos were. My hopes rose, however, when I saw some eggless nests with penguins sitting upon them, but later I found that these were used as bachelor quarters by birds whose wives were sitting near. I tried taking eggs from nests, and was delighted to find that new eggs appeared. These I carefully marked, and it was not until I opened one two days later to find inside an embryo at least two weeks old that I realised that penguins added baby-snatching to their other immoralities. Some of those from whom I took eggs sat upon stones of a similar size and shape, with every appearance of content. One sat upon the half of the red tin of a Dutch cheese. They are not very intelligent. All the world loves a penguin. I think it is because in many respects they are like ourselves, and in some respects what we should like to be. Had we but half their physical courage none could stand against us. Had we a hundredth part of their maternal instinct "'we should have to kill our children by the thousand. "'Their little bodies are so full of curiosity "'that they have no room for fear. "'They like mountaineering, and joy-riding on ice-floes. "'They even like to drill. "'One day there had been a blizzard, "'and lying open to the view of all was a deserted nest, "'a pile of coveted stones. "'All the surrounding rookery made their way to and fro, "'each husband acquiring merit, "'for, after each journey, he gave his wife a stone.' This was the plebeian way of doing things, but my friend who stood ever so unconcerned upon a rock knew a trick worth two of that, he and his wife who sat so cosily upon the other side. The victim was a third penguin, he was without a mate, but this was an opportunity to get one. With all the speed his little legs could compass he ran to and fro, taking stones from the deserted nest, laying them beneath a rock, and hurrying back for more. On that same rock was my friend." When the victim came up with his stone, he had his back turned, but as soon as the stone was laid and the other gone for more, he jumped down, seized it with his beak, ran round, gave it to his wife and was back on the rock, with his back turned, before you could say kill a whale. Every now and then he looked over his shoulder to see where the next stone might be. I watched this for twenty minutes. All that time, and I do not know for how long before, the wretched bird was bringing stone after stone, and there were no stones there once he looked puzzled looked up and swore at the back of my friend on his rock but immediately he came back and he never seemed to think he had better stop it was getting cold and i went away he was coming for another the life of the Adelie penguin is one of the most unchristian and successful in the world the penguin which went in for being a true believer would never stand the ghost of a chance watch them go to bathe some fifty or sixty agitated birds are gathered upon the ice foot peering over the edge telling one another how nice it will be, and what a good dinner they are going to have. But this is all swank. They are really worried by the horrid suspicion that a sea leopard is waiting to eat the first to dive. The really noble bird, according to our theories, would say, I will go first, and if I am killed I shall at any rate have died unselfishly, sacrificing my life for my companions. And in time all the most noble birds would be dead. What they really do is to try and persuade a companion of weaker mind to plunge, failing this they hastily pass a conscription act and push him over and then bang helter-skelter in go all the rest they take turns in sitting on their eggs and after many days the fathers may be seen waddling down towards the sea with their shirt fronts muddied their long trick done it may be a fortnight before they return well fed clean pleased with life and with a grim determination to relieve their wives to do their job sometimes they are met by others going to bathe they stop and pass the time of day well perhaps it would be more pleasant and what does a day or two matter anyhow they turn clean and dirty alike are off to the seaside again this is when they say the women are splendid life is too strenuous for them to have any use for the virtues of brotherly love good works charity and benevolence whenever they mate the best thief wins when they nest the best pair of thieves hatch out their eggs in a long unbroken stream which stretches down below the sea-ice horizon They march in from the open sea. Some are walking on their human feet, others tobogganing upon their shiny white breasts. After their long walk, they must have a sleep, and then the gentlemen make their way into the already crowded rookery to find their wives. But first a suitor must find or steal a pebble, for such are the penguin jewels. They are of lava, black, russet, or grey, with almond-shaped crystals bedded in them. They are rare and of all sizes, but that which is most valued is the size of a pigeon's egg. Armed with one of these, he courts his maid, laying it at her feet. If accepted, he steals still more stones. She guards them jealously, taking the meantime any safe opportunity to pick others from under her nearest neighbours. Any penguin which is unable to fight and steal successfully, fails to make a good high nest, or loses it when made. Then comes a blizzard, and after that a thaw, for it thaws sometimes right down by the seashore where the Adelies have their nurseries. The eggs of the strong and wicked hatch out, but those of the weak are addled. You must have a jolly good pile of stones to hatch eggs after a blizzard, like that in December 1911, when rookeries were completely snow-covered, nests, eggs, parents and all. Once hatched, the chicks grow quickly from pretty grey atoms of down to black lumps of stomach topped by a small and quite inadequate head. They are two or more weeks old, and they leave their parents, or their parents leave them, I do not know which. If Socialism be the nationalisation of the means of production and distribution, then they are Socialists. They divide into parents and children. The adult community comes up from the open sea, bringing food inside them. They are full of half-digested shrimps, but not for their own children. These if not already dead, are lost in a crowd of hungry tottering infants, which besiege each food provider as he arrives. But not all of them can get food, though all of them are hungry some have already been behindhand too long they have not managed to secure food for days and they are weak and cold and very weary as we stood there and watched this race for food we were gradually possessed with the idea that the chicks looked upon each adult coming up full bellied from the shore as not a parent only but a food supply the parents were labouring under a totally different idea and intended either to find their own infants and feed them or else to assimilate their already partially digested catch themselves the more robust of the young thus worried an adult until because of his importunity he was fed but with the less robust a much more pathetic ending was the rule a chick that had fallen behind in this literal race for life starving and weak and getting daily weaker because it could not run fast enough to insist on being fed again and again ran off pursuing with the rest again and again it stumbled and fell persistently whining out its hunger in a shrill and melancholy pipe till at last the race was given up forced thus by sheer exhaustion to stop and rest it had no chance of getting food each hurrying parent with its little following of hungry chicks intent on one thing only rushed quickly by and the starveling dropped behind to gather strength for one more effort again it fails a robuster bird has forced the pace and again success is wanting to the runt sleepily it stands there with half-shut eyes, in a torpor resulting from exhaustion, cold and hunger, wondering perhaps what all the bustle round it means, a little dirty dishevelled dot, in the race for life a failure, deserted by its parents, who have hunted vainly for their own offspring round the nest in which they hatched it, but from which it may by now have wandered half a mile. And so it stands, lost to everything around, till a skewer in its beat drops down beside it, and with a few strong vicious pecks, puts an end to the failing life. There is a great deal to be said for this kind of treatment. The Adelie Penguin has a hard life. The Emperor Penguin a horrible one. Why not kill off the unfit right away before they have had time to breed, almost before they have had time to eat? Life is a stern business in any case. Why pretend that it is anything else, or that any but the best can survive at all? and in consequence i challenge you to find a more jolly happy healthy lot of old gentlemen in the world we must admire them if only because they are so much nicer than ourselves but it is grim nature is an uncompromising nurse nature was going to give us a bad time too if we were not relieved and on january seventeenth as there were still no signs of the ship it was decided to prepare for another winter we were to go on rations to cook with oil for nearly all the coal was gone to kill and store up a seal On January 18th we started our preparations, digging a cave to store more meat and so forth. I went off seal-hunting after breakfast, and having killed and cut up two, came back across the Cape at midday. All the men were out working in the camp. There was nothing to be seen in the sound, and then quite suddenly the bows of a ship came out from behind the end of the barn glacier, two or three miles away. We watched her cautious approach with immense relief. "'Are you all well?' Through a megaphone from the bridge. "'The Polar Party died on their return from the Pole. We have their records.' A pause, and then a boat. Evans, who had been to England, and made a good recovery from scurvy, was in command. With him were Pennell, Rennick, Bruce, Lily, and Drake. They reported having had a very big gale indeed on their way home last year. "'We got some apples off the ship. Beauties. I want nothing better. Pennell is first class as always.' One notices among the ship's men a rather unnatural way of talking, not so much in special instances, but as a whole. Contact with civilization gives it an affected sound. I notice it in both the officers and men. July 19th, on board the Terra Nova After twenty-eight hours loading, we left the old hut, for good and all, at four p.m. this afternoon. It has been a bit of a rush and little sleep last night. It is quite wonderful now to be travelling a day's journey in an hour. We went to Cape Royd's in about that time and took off geological and zoological specimens. I should like to sit up and sketch all these views, which would have meant long travelling without the ship, but I feel very tired. The mail is almost too good for words. Now with the latest waltz on the gramophone, beer for dinner, and apples and fresh vegetables to eat, life is more bearable than it has been for many a long weary week and month. I leave Cape Evans with no regret. I never want to see the place again. The pleasant memories are all swallowed up in the bad ones. Before the ship arrived, it was decided among us to urge the erection of a cross on Observation Hill to the memory of the polar party. On the arrival of the ship, the carpenter immediately set to work to make a great cross of wood. There was some discussion as to the inscription, it being urged that there should be some quotation from the Bible, because the women think a lot of these things. But I was glad to see the concluding line of Tennyson's Ulysses adopted, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. The open water stretched about a mile and a half south of Tent Island, and here we left the ship to sledge across to Hut Point at eight a.m. on January twentieth. The party consisted of Atkinson, Wright, Lashley, Crean, Debenham, Keon, and Davis, the ship's carpenter, and myself. Evening, Hut Point. We had a most unpleasant experience coming in. We struck wind and drift just about a mile from Hut Point. Then we saw there was a small thaw-pool off the point, and came out to give it a wide berth. Atkinson put his feet down into the water. We turned sharp out, and then Crean was right in up to his arms, and we realised that the ice was not more than three or four inches of slush. I managed to give him a hand out without the ice giving, and we went on floundering about. Then Crean went right in again, and the sledge nearly went too. We pulled the sledge, and the sledge pulled him out. Except for some more soft patches, that was all, but it was quite enough. I think we got out of it most fortunately. Crean got some dry clothes here, and the cross has had a coat of white paint and is drying. We went up Observation Hill, and have found a good spot right on the top, and have already dug a hole which will, with the rock alongside, give us three feet. From there we can see that this year's old ice is in a terrible state. Open water and open water slush all over near the land. I have never seen anything like it here. Off Cape Armitage, and at the pram Point Pressure, it is extra bad. I only hope we can find a safe way back. You would not think Crean had had such a pair of duckings to hear him talking so merrily tonight. I really do think the cross is going to look fine. Observation Hill was clearly the place for it. It knew them all so well. Three of them were discovery men, who lived three years under its shadow they had seen it time after time as they came back from hard journeys on the barrier. Observation Hill and Castle Rock were the two which always welcomed them in. It commanded McMurdo Sound on one side, where they had lived, and the barrier on the other where they had died. No more fitting pedestal, a pedestal which in itself is nearly a thousand feet high, could have been found. Tuesday, January 22nd Rousing out at 6 a.m. We got the large piece of the cross up Observation Hill by 11 a.m. It was a heavy job, and the ice was looking very bad all round, and I for one was glad when we had got it up by five o'clock or so. It is really magnificent, and will be a permanent memorial, which could be seen from the ship nine miles off with the naked eye. It stands nine feet out of the rocks, and many feet into the ground, and I do not believe it will ever move. When it was up, facing out over the barrier, we gave three cheers, and one more. End of chapter 19, part 3